Hello you, welcome to this episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Steel Magnolias and we're talking about it with our great friend, Ali Sukovich. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Steel Magnolias is a 1989 American comedy drama film directed by Herbert Ross and starring Academy Award winners Sally Field, Shirley MacLaine, and Olympia Dukakis. It also stars Dolly Parton, Daryl Hannah, and Julia Roberts. The film is an adaptation of Robert Harling's 1987 play of the same name about the bond a group of women share in a small town southern community. And it's about how they cope with the death of one of their own. We mentioned this in the episode in passing, but Robert Harling based the story in part on his sister, Susan Harling Robinson. She died in 1985 of complications from type 1 diabetes. In the film, Julia Roberts plays Shelby, the character based on Susan. And again, we're joined by Ali Sukovich, friend of the show, a writer, a proud Pittsburgh native, uh, someone whose friends say that she is like if Hello Kitty was a real person. We were so delighted to have Ali on the show. And when we were like, what do you want to come talk about? Ali unequivocally offered Steel Magnolias. And so here we are. You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. You help make the whole thing work. We are creative folks who make podcasts, and uh, those podcasts are paid for by people who throw a few dollars our way every few months or a handful of dollars for the year. Uh, And you get bonus episodes in exchange for that contribution. We really appreciate you. This is made possible by you, uh, and we are grateful that you help make that possible. So thank you. We are through... With the You're Wrong About Spring Tour, uh, I was there as tour manager. We had a grand time seeing all of you, and I was so lucky to meet literally thousands of you at the merch table, and I was so grateful to be able to do that because I got to meet so many of you. It was a delight, and if we didn't get to see you this time, hopefully we will get to see you next time. Thanks so much for coming up and saying hello, all of you who did. It was so nice putting some faces with names considering I uh, see a lot of you online, but uh, you know, don't always know what y'all are like in real life, so that was lovely. How's everything going on in your world? How's the last uh, book that you read? How is the last movie that you watched? How is the last sort of uh, TikTok or reel that made you chuckle? How is the family? How is it going? I hope everything is going as good as it can. And if it's not right now, I'm sure it will again soon. And don't forget, my friend, that you are good. Thanks for being here. All right, let's talk Steel Magnolias with Ali Sukovich. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Has anyone ever told you that you're too twisted for color TV? All the time. Yeah. (laughs) Alex, I don't know if you've been looking out the window, but we're in Burlington, Vermont, and I think it just snowed a little bit. I, was it snowing last night? Because I saw I saw a door open and it looked like some like white stuff blew in. I didn't know if it was blooms or snow. Oh, that's that's a that's a lost Robert Frost poem right there. (laughs) It's 39 degrees right now. And I think I just saw a flurry. So we're talking about Steel Magnolias and we're talking about it with Ali Sugovich. Ali, did I say your last name correctly? 
You said it perfectly. I'm amazed. I have many, many Slavs in my life. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The perfect Slavic uh, pronunciation. I couldn't be more impressed. (laughs) Thank you so much. Ali, what brings you here and what tell us about your relationship with Steel Magnolias? Well, I am a a huge fan and friend of the pod. I have a very personal connection to this movie. Uh, First of all, I'm a huge Dolly Parton fan, so I have to see every movie she's ever been in. I have been saying that pink is my signature color since I was probably five years old and I'm (laughs) about to turn 30. And I told my mom that when we have dinner, I want the theme to be blush and bashful. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, um, I've always had such an intense love for this movie. uh, And I kind of, I'm sort of almost an evangelist for it. I sort of want everyone to see it. And I think that beyond that too, every family has a movie or two that they sort of the one-liners just kind of pour out of the family. It's like this running inside joke. And Mm -hmm. this is for sure uh, that movie for my family. We say things like, I love you more than my luggage all the time. (laughs) Um, If anyone does something silly, everyone's response is, are you high, Clary? (laughs) (laughs) If there are ever birds in the tree, you shoot about 30 or 40 rounds at them. Yes, (laughs) yes, we we do. Yes. Um, The other thing too is uh, I've been to Dollywood. I love her so much. And when my best friend had her baby, we took him to Dollywood. This is his first ever trip. And I like held him up to see the Steel Magnolia script. (laughs) And and one final connection um, as I have a Magnolia tattoo for this movie. Oh, wonderful. Yes. And of course, it's pink. Why would it be? That's perfect. Okay. I'm going to try and give a very concise summary. Steel Magnolias is about six women Six steel magnolias, if you will. <laughs> There's Malin. She has an, uh, an apostrophe in her name, which I just think is so great. Um, and she's played by Sally Field. And she's just a classic Sally Field character. She's just constantly going through the five stages of grief. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, what did you, you tweeted about her yesterday on uh, while watching the movie, I think? I did. And it was, I wanted to say something a bit more eloquent about her acting, but I was kind of so sucked up in the movie that all I said was, I love when I watch a movie and Sally Field is Sally Fielding, which now I realize Sarah (laughs) is, yeah, Sally going through the five stages of grief. That's the perfect uh, description of the movie. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people know this. I think I also knew it at one time and then I forgot it for 10 years and then relearned it. But did you guys know that when Sally Field and Daniel Day-Lewis for making Lincoln. They didn't have a lot of rehearsal time, and so they texted each other in character as the Lincolns. I did not know that. That's amazing. And she was interviewed on NPR about it, and they were like, what did you text him about? She was like, I'm not telling you. <laughs> I love also, like, Sally Field is kind of wonderfully and notoriously just, like, a little surly, which I really like, because when they were doing the press for that 80 for Brady movie, mm-hmm. everyone was really putting it in and trying to get butts in the seats to see 80 for Brady. And Sally Field was like, I don't care if you see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, I always really liked it when Paul Rudd was in one of the 8,000 movies he made around 2010. <laughs> and he was on The Daily Show promoting it. And John Stewart was like, so tell people to come see this movie. He was like, I don't know. Why should you come see it? What does Netflix cost? Like a quarter a DVD now? Just whatever. <laughs> yeah. And Sally Field. I love Sally yeah. Field. I was watching this and I was like, 
Oh, I love her. So she's Malin. She's the mother of Shelby, played by Julia Roberts in her post-Mystic Pizza pre-Pretty Woman moment. This movie opens on the day of Malin's daughter's wedding, um, and her first child will be a masculine child. It's just some interesting <laughs> parallels to The Godfather. And Shelby is going to marry... Dylan McDermott? No, the Mulroney one. Dermot Mulroney. God, <laughs> I used to be so good at that. And what I find so interesting about this movie is that it's really about female friendship and community in a world where everyone's husband is either dead or useless. And <laughs> the trajectory of the plot is Julia Roberts getting married and therefore beginning her bobsled ride toward an early death. <laughs> I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> this is the movie that like people will look at, scholars will look at and be like, this was moments before everyone was a lesbian. It, you can see that they were almost there. <laughs> uh, the interesting point about the husbands either being dead or, or useless, it's uh, the contrast of the very first scene of that movie where... I, I can't remember the name of Malin's husband. Is it is it Drum? It's Drum, yeah. Because yeah. I watched it with subtitles on, and I was like, that man's name is Drum. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the contrast of the movie. I mean, it's where everybody is, is getting, you know, sort of geared up in their blush and bashful outfits. And meanwhile, he's, you know, as Alex said earlier, shooting, <laughs> firing 30 to 40 rounds into a tree to get rid of the birds, upsetting Weezer, the neighbor. It's one of my favorite setups for the beginning of the movie, because it's kind of pushing you into this mindset of, you know, what Southern men traditionally were, were doing at the time. And, you know, women taking on all these more emotional roles and, I just, I love the beginning and the way that they set this movie. Yeah. And I love, I was watching this and I was like, man, I love movies that are like party to party and conversation to conversation, which yeah. of course this is like the movie for that really. And by the way, speaking of all of his shooting, this is the only movie I've ever seen that does not respect the Chekhov's gun law. What a great point. That gun is out and about. It's and it, we, it's eventually explained away in that they are blanks, but we have since learned that even that doesn't matter. But the um, this gun is out and about. At some point, it's just left like on a table in the house, and it's hidden in a drawer. And I was like, mm -hmm. "That gun's gotta come back. Like it has made a big <laughs> appearance, and it doesn't. It does not come back. Right? Like I think anywhere, but in storytelling, in like. Louisiana or Wisconsin where it's just like oh yeah there's just some guns yeah <laughs> don't worry about it it must be said like this is um a, a movie in part about a white man in his 50s who loves shooting a gun just in, in random directions in his yard which we've learned has consequences <laughs> beyond tear jerking and different for different reasons yes yeah it's it's a domestic tear jerker movie I'm just going to, okay, plot summary, plot summary, Sarah. All right, we're, we're going to get into it. So, okay, it is the day of Malin's daughter Shelby's wedding. Meanwhile, Truvy, she's not a beautician. What is she? Glamour technician? Yes, she's a glamour technician. <laughs> Truvy is, of course, played by Dolly Parton. And on this day, this fateful day, Daryl Hannah, playing Anel, shows up in town or shows up at Truvy's beauty shop looking for a job. And so her character is introduced. She's the David Jacobs of Steel Magnolias. <laughs> and then we meet 
Clary, who's our kind of society lady about town character, I would say, played by Olympia Dukakis, and her best frenemy, Weezer, played by Shirley MacLaine, who I think we meet, she's wearing like overalls and a fur coat, and then her face is filthy and she has big diamond earrings on. Yeah, and to your point of like eventually everyone will be a lesbian, she is until they're like we. I think we probably are obligated by law to give her a male interest. Like she is our lesbian yeah. in the movie. Like she's just like they were like we'll satisfy the straights by throwing in this sad useless man later. But like she is effectively our second wave feminist lesbian. I mean, basically the trajectory of this movie is that Julia Roberts gets married. She's just been told she can't have children because of her diabetes. But she's like, I'm going to have a child anyway, which she decides to do at Christmas, has a baby who's born on the 4th of July. Oh, no. Not to be that guy that (laughs) overexplains, but it's the 3rd of July. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I remember this so well because I'm born on the 5th of July. And Mm -hmm. when they sing born on the 3rd of July. It always takes me back to when my family used to sing the same thing, born on the 5th of July. Yeah, very cute. Cancer babies. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so Shelby has her baby, the subject of Oliver Stone's prequel, born on the 3rd of July. Then her kidneys can't take it, so they give out. So she is getting dialysis, but she's going to get a kidney transplant from her mother, which goes well. And then we immediately flash forward a couple years and Shelby's like, oh, no, they never explain what happens. But, you know, something kidney related. I'm so glad you said that about the flash forward. For some reason, I did not pick up the flash forward. So I was like, this is a raucous year. Like, this is a lot that's happening. How much time has passed? I would say probably maybe a year or two, because I'd say that her son... Jack is probably two or three years old whenever yeah. the flash forward begins. Yes. It, it, but it's not clear. You're right. Like you go from her, you know, announcing that she's pregnant and then suddenly the baby is just here. Mm-hmm. And I believe that what happens to her, and maybe you're about to get to this, Sarah, but she, Julia Roberts' body eventually rejects the kidney. Oh, mm. no, I didn't realize that that's what happens. And I also didn't pick up on it until I think this is probably one of the first times I ever watched the movie with subtitles. And the doctors are describing what's happening to her in a very um, hushed way. And the only way you can really pick up on it is if you're like paying real close attention to the subtitles. But mm-hmm. I think they say that after, you know, a year or two, her nervous system goes into some kind of shock. And it causes an infection and the infection is so bad that it puts her in an irreversible coma. Mm. (sighs) Yeah. I do kind of like how like a lot of the turns are kind of abrupt that they're like, you know where we're going, but there's not like a big, uh, it doesn't sort of like gradually on ramp. It's just like, nah, we're in this new phase. Stick with us. I think that may be because this was adapted from a play. Yes, totally. And yeah, whenever, you know, you can't really make a lot of gradual changes in a play. It's, you know, next scene, next set or whatever. So I love that they kind of kept that play model intact. Yeah, same. Did you, you started watching this like super young? Yes, I was um, 
my mom and I, that was sort of like our activity together was we were watching gratuitously sad movies together. My mom loves sad music. She loves sad movies. So I think I probably first saw this movie when I was like 10 years old, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it inspired me like the year after when I told my mom, you know, again, I, I at 30 years old, I want a blush and bashful themed birthday. And I think when I was 11, I wanted one too. So Yeah, it's perfect bookends. Yes, exactly. I think that's basically what it's about. Yeah. And then Shelby goes into a coma and they're like, well, we haven't politicized this issue yet. Let's take her off life support. And then Sally Field goes through the five stages of grief in 30 seconds at the funeral. And then Anel is having a baby now who she wants to name Shelby. And Sam Shepard, Dolly Parton's husband, finally did something with her when she goes into labor at the very end and everybody kind of mobilizes, like we're back into the initial chaos mm-hmm. that we opened the movie with, which I really appreciated. Yes. Is like the movie mm-hmm. opens with all this like mm-hmm. chaos, the boys being kind of like half useful in tracking down sort of like the father who's dressed as an Easter bunny with a tie, which I really <laughs> like. But like we have like the nice mm-hmm. bookends of chaos at the beginning and chaos at the end. And then there's a quiet brewing chaos throughout the entire middle of it. So I like that. Yeah. And then the last kind of the last thing that happens before Anel goes into labor, which is our very last thing, is that baby Jack slaps Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> and that happens in like the last minute of this movie, which I think is really great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So what? So, Ali, as someone who was raised on this movie, uh, someone who came into this movie young, what did you connect with then? And sort of what do you connect with now? I think when I was young, I mean, I, I didn't have the, the knack for, you know, uh, gender roles and picking up on those sort of aspects like I did when, when I was older. Um, when I was young, I, I sort of just saw it as, you know, this sad, but really funny movie. Like I appreciated the one liners and the way that it connected to family. And I remember after seeing this movie, for the first time, my mom was saying, you know, if you ever needed it, I'd give you a kidney. <laughs> and I remember saying back to her, I do the same for you. Um, you know, when I was young, I, I admittedly like it meant a lot to me, but it was so much more rooted in like my personal connection to it. And as I got older and I started forming, you know, relationships with men on my own, mm. I started to really pick up on the fact that, you know, Dolly Parton, Truvy's husband was not attentive and didn't attend any events with her. And mm-hmm. the line in particular where Sally Field is Sally Fielding full-fledged in the five stages of grief <laughs> And I know that it's it's literally one of those moments where they say almost the title of the movie, but she says, I find it amusing. Men are supposed to be made of steel. Mm-hmm. And I think that was sort of the driver for me to get this tattoo as I realized that, you know, women and families are expected to hold a very soft role. But at the same time, there's sort of the supports that are holding up you know, everybody. So yeah, I think it sort of made me very proud to be like a very soft and sensitive, but also strong person at the same time. Mm-hmm. It made me look at the women in my life a lot more closely with a lot more respect and appreciation, mm-hmm. especially because like I said, all of the women in my family, my aunts, my grandmother, my mom have, have flocked to this movie as something that they really identify with. So I think, I think that's pretty much my point. <laughs> yeah. Do you, was it scary to be into a movie where the person who I kind of feel like you may be most identified with title wise dies at the end so young? Were you like, is this, 
it's a young age to be into a movie that just confronts you with your sort of mortality that quickly. It was. And I remember being the, the most devastating part of the movie. And for a while, similarly to there's <laughs> there's so many sad movies where I just sort of fast forward through the bad parts. And <laughs> when I was younger, I could not handle the scene where Jackson, her husband, comes into the house and finds Jack screaming and pointing at Julia Roberts mm. fainting. Like that was the most devastating mm -hmm. part of this movie. And it did make me a lot more aware of, of death. I think it was probably, as you said, like one of the first times I've ever been confronted with the idea of someone dying young. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I guess it sort of made me, it kind of shaped me in a way that I think I became just a bit more sensitive, like, like mm. I said before. So, yeah. Yeah, I found it interesting in that, like, you know, it's like kind of clearly going in that direction from the beginning. And mm -hmm. You get a sense that this isn't going to end well for everyone involved, but you don't know exactly how. But what I do appreciate, and I think that this, you know, I, I just poked around a little bit in, in reviews while watching and realized that I think like not everybody knew what to do with the fact that it ends kind of as dramatically as it does but it still maintains a sense of humor throughout but i think that that's the thing that i appreciated most is like mm -hmm. there's the kind of the key moment where sally field is finally you know leaning into one of the five stages harder than the other where she's talking about how she doesn't want to she's rejecting the fact that this has happened and she's bemoaning the fact that this has happened and then all of the women kind of come to her aid to get her to laugh um maybe not intentionally but that's what ends up happening anyway and I love that because that's typically the only way I've been able to deal with grief in any meaningful way is to find laughter. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right. Every time uh, Dolly, uh, aka Truvy, says um, laughter through tears is my favorite emotion, it makes me think of my my grandmother's favorite saying, which is I always laugh because it keeps me from crying. And <laughs> the beautiful part of this movie is is the way that these uh, female friendships form that's such a strong community. When they all notice that Malin is standing by the casket, I, I love that scene where they all, they're talking to their husbands, they're talking to whomever, and they all flock to Sally Field to comfort her and to sort of reinforce this idea of female community and, and supporting one another and, you know, your chosen family, so to speak. I watched an Oprah interview after I watched this movie because I just couldn't get enough of all of the six fabulous ladies and Oprah was interviewing all of them right when this movie first came out. And what I love about it is all of those actresses remained friends mm -hmm. and they were so strong. I, I remember when I started, I, I love Golden Girls. And when I delved into some of the lore of Golden Girls, I was devastated that B. Arthur and um, Betty White didn't get along. I was mm. so sad about it. And mm. I know that shouldn't affect my perception and everything, but one of the first lines of the interview with Oprah that Sally Field says is, you know, we all need each other. Mm. And mm. I, I love that on screen and off screen, they were so supportive and that they're still friends to this day. So. Yeah, I feel like aesthetically, Oprah interviews the cast of Steel Magnolias is a perfect artifact from the late 80s. <laughs> yes, very much so. Very much so. Yeah. I'm wondering, just like of the kind of smaller plots that unfold along the way, like what are the ones that you enjoy? I really love the relationship between Anel and Truvy. Mm -hmm. I love mm. the way that Anel comes and it's not really, and maybe I didn't pick up on this as well as I, as I thought I did, but I believe Anel's husband is somewhat of a criminal. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he's difficult to be around, maybe. Yes. And um, one of my favorite subplots is the way that Truvy brings her in. You know, she she's an outsider. And I think some people have sort of a perception of catty Southern women to not be very inclusive. But, you know, Dolly uh, Truvy, I'm, I'm just going to call her. She's Dolly Parton. <laughs> in every movie, she's Dolly Parton. Mm-hmm. In 9 to 5, in Steel Magnolia, she's Dolly Parton. I, I love the way that she brings her in instantly and she becomes a part of this family. And I mean, that might be the the play model at work, you know, narr- like in a narrative way. But that's one of my one of my favorite plot points is her and Truvy. I like so I just want to make a quick note. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she's still doing it, but there was a burlesque performer in Nashville who I think was Dolly's niece who went by <gasps> the name Truvy in her shows. So uh it's nice to know mm-hmm. that the I don't know how authorized that was by Dolly, probably. Who knows? But uh <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many how many legalities there are in burlesque. Yeah, you know, yeah, is, exactly. is a parody protected by copyright law? <laughs> I like to think that Dolly is probably supportive of it. She's always been a woman who's been at least publicly very in touch with her, you know, sensuality. And she's from Tennessee. So I like to think that it probably brings a little bit of, uh, this might just be my parasocial relationship with Dolly Parton coming out, but I really like to think that she's supportive of it if she's aware of it i'm yeah let's let's go with dolly supportive of it yes (laughs) but i I like that relationship too in the movie uh, largely because we we watch this thing happens that i've seen happen in my life where you know anel's in this situation where their husband gets out of the situation where their husband is young finds this work is going a little wild and then goes to church and becomes annoyingly committed to god and Mm. so (laughs) and everyone's kind of annoyed by it which i had really like. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone's like, look, we go to church too, but like this is too much. You're doing it too much. But we go to church so we can dress up and gossip, which is what it's for. <laughs> I do like that path, like the the arc of that path because also by the end, you know, we see her in a wayward faithlessness. I don't know if she's faithless, but in a waywardness, she goes to church, gets a little too into it, and by the end, you know, says something about essentially how it's okay that Julia Roberts died because now she's with her king, which is the pretty much the most upsetting line, I think, of the movie. Because again, you we all have been in a situation where someone tried to yeah. sue us with exactly the wrong thing. And then in the end, she's finally having uh, her child and she's naming her after after Julia Roberts' uh, character. So I, I like that. I like that arc a whole lot. I like that they're like, you know, when people get a little too into it, it's fucking annoying. <laughs> also really like that moment because you're like oh my god don't say this to sally field and then she's like i don't know maybe it's stupid but like this is the kind of thing i have to tell myself to get through life and you're like oh yeah it's also very real that people say stuff like that because they're like look we can't just be like hey your daughter died <laughs> yeah i sarah great i i had forgotten that that's a part that i love is that she says that cringy thing and then explains why yeah. she said it yeah that's like a very lovely moment it is and sally it, it, it like tempers sally field for a moment before she has a truly is like, you know, in Sally Field vernacular, why the fuck is this happening to me? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, One of my uh, favorite 
points of uh, Anel's arc to become a woman of God is, first of all, the fact that the girls threw her a Halloween-themed baby shower. I <laughs> Part of me thought that maybe there would be some sort of like like freak out on Anel's part because it's, you know, sort of, you know, sacrilege. Like, is she that religious? And but my favorite point is whenever um, Weezer gets her a piece of lingerie for her to wear, probably Anel's first piece of lingerie ever. And she goes, if you're mm-hmm. going to sit in bed and read the Bible all night, at least wear something inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how the girls kind of tease her about it without being, you know, offensive, because obviously it brought her a lot of comfort with her husband becoming a known criminal. So, yeah. Sarah, I'm curious mm-hmm. about what your your take on Shirley MacLaine's character is, because I love I, it feels so real that there's a group of friends and there's one who it's questionable where everyone stands on that friend mm-hmm. <laughs> until kind of the end. I do like this like on and off thing that's happening throughout the movie where it, look, it seems like her and Tom Skerritt have some history, which I really I like. We get sort of like mm-hmm. these little peeks into based on the dynamic of their relationship, the teasy dynamic of their relationship. But what was your take on her character? I mean, yeah, obviously I love her. I, I feel like her arc is just she kind of stays the same amount of salty the whole time, but you get to know her better <laughs> as the audience. Right. But yeah. like, don't you think that that's like, I don't know, like part of any kind of actual long-term community is like the prickly parts yes sure what do you think about weezer alex i love weezer i think it's a great i think it's a great character i think like and i like again i like that she's not always there but she kind of is always there because if she's not there they're talking about her Mm -hmm. and if she is there she's very there um you know and she's a she's kind of a Everyone else speaks in some, you know, like flowery euphemism about whatever they're talking about. And she speaks very directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I appreciate that. She is the Miranda of their group in that way. <laughs> She's like the, the Miranda just like put on those overalls she wears in season two and never took them <laughs> off again. <laughs> Where do they get those overalls? Anyway, it's a fixation of mine. She reminds me of the character down to the dog that is in Gremlins, the one who uh, the one who walks around kind of like with the dog. She's ultimately trying to like evict I don't whatever that we don't need to go into this Gremlins. Yeah, old lady Richington. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, great job. <laughs> it is like another thing I love about um, movies that feel like plays are adapted from plays. I think this is something I like about plays generally is like, <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but like people like loudly entering, like when yes. Razor comes in and she's got all the tomatoes and she's like getting a Coke and like moving around and putting stuff down and like, and you're just, I love how in plays people are always like entering rooms and being like, here's what I'm about. Because <laughs> when I enter a room, I'm like, hi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there's something kind of like otherworldly about a play adapted into a yeah. movie. It's like clearly architected for stage down to what you're saying it's like the reason people come into rooms and make it big is like there needs to be some dynamism of what's going on stage because there aren't moving cameras and so people are doing whatever and so as a result it always feels like a little like a dream even if what they're talking about is the reality of people living and dying Mm -hmm. it's like it always feels like slightly dreamlike and this one is no exception 
who knows if this was intentional or not, but the one scene that we're mentioning when sort of Weezer makes this dramatic entrance and she sits down on her own tomatoes that she grew, that she feels obligated to grow because she's a Southern woman that has to wear a funny hat and overalls. Um, <laughs> when the one part, she's like, I am pleasant. And, <laughs> and somebody else in the room suggests that if she exposes herself to art in more ways to occupy her time. She might be happy. And she says she hates plays and she hates movies. And, you know, the best plays are always adapted into movies and they're terrible or something <laughs> like that. And and she's like, but if a book is good, they'll turn it into a miniseries, which is, I, I couldn't tell if she was like supportive of the miniseries idea or not, but just the way that she like wholeheartedly rejects culture. I think she just wants to watch the miniseries with like some Mountain Dew and a goblet, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, not tomatoes. (laughs) No no tomatoes involved. But um, it's such an interesting... Yeah, moment of of like characterizing her and solidifying her as sort of this like I hate culture type of woman. Yeah, (laughs) I totally I feel like I identify with that because in certain moods, I love to make like very severe proclamations where later on I'm like, do I even think that? I don't know. Who cares? (laughs) I also like tomatoes are not the most low effort thing to grow. I feel like she actually is like She's growing those tomatoes for her friends, you guys. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and she can't tell them. She's not able to (laughs) tell them. She would rather die than tell them. (laughs) (laughs) I can relate. Alex, what do you think her... Okay, so wait, let's run down the husbands in this, actually. So we have Anel, whose first husband ran off with all her money and who ends up with the bartender from Shelby's wedding, who makes her a cherry Coke, which is very sweet. We have Truvy's husband, Sam Shepard, who doesn't want to leave the house, even to see the sparkler nativity. We have Malin's husband, Drum, who is Tom Skerritt, and he's just Tom Skerritt. And then Clary and Weezer's husbands are dead and in the ground. Oh, and then we have... um, (laughs) whichever guy Dermot Mulroney (laughs) Dermot Mulroney who (laughs) married Shelby and you know and now she's dead so you know it's supposedly based on everything being a patriarchy which it is but it is a quote man's world and this is the movie that happens when it looks at how insane that is Mm -hmm. and says like but look at what the men are up to like let's like look at sort of like what is really happening here I like that like a big part, it seems, of Sally Field's anxiety about Julia Roberts getting married is she's getting married to a man, right? Like not not right. that she's she had another vision for her, but she's like, you know, she wants to make sure that like he wants the same things that she does. And is she sure that like they're on the same page about stuff? Is she going to get stuck in a situation? Mm -hmm. Is her marriage and her new family going to be the end of her? And it is actually, but like not for the reasons that Sally Field thinks that that might be the case. A lot of these women, with the exception of Trevi, who has is pretty classically Dolly Parton in this role. Everybody is not surprisingly very cautious. Well, and even her, she's acknowledged kind of the shortcomings of her husband, obviously, but Mm -hmm. everybody is very aware that if you include a man in a situation, things get precarious. Mm. Yes, I agree. And something that I didn't pick up on until I was an adult was sort of my, my own resentment toward Jackson, Julia Roberts, AKA Shelby's husband, this 
you know, she obviously, I'm not obviously, but it seems like she, she's very much into the idea of starting a family with this man. Like it's obvious that, that she loves him, but Sally Field has so many reservations because, you know, as you said, Alex, it's, you know, they want the same thing, but that same thing is a potential detriment to Shelby's health. And I mm-hmm. I never really picked up on my resentment toward him for that. I mean, obviously, if there wasn't pressure to have a baby, there wouldn't be a plotter, you know, of this film and Julia Roberts wouldn't have died. But one of the things they keep saying, to your point about the patriarchy, is that she really wants to give him a son. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. In spite of the fact that most of the women in this, uh, in this movie have pretty... Uh, trepidatious relationships with their husbands and and men in general. Mm -hmm. So it's for me, like as, as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, wow, he just, you know, they, they talked about adoption. They talked about, you know, quote unquote, buying a kid. Oh yeah. That comes up a lot. I forgot about that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, like that nice couple and the people under the stairs, they'll steal one for you. And we find out she has announced to her mother that she's going to have this child. Her mom is not happy about it. And her mom is not happy because with her uh, medical situation, it could easily end up in the way that it does end up. And she's making something that calls for like 10 eggs. Yeah, she is really cooking eggs. (laughs) (laughs) But I find it so resonant in something I've seen or been a part of in, in relationships in my life throughout my life where, you know, Julia Roberts does want one thing. Mm-hmm. Dermot Mulroney does want one thing. Is Julia Roberts fully aware that the thing that she wants may be influenced or impacted by like what he wants? Like, does she, you know, how do you tell someone that what they want is ultimately going to be bad for them? Can mm-hmm. you even do that? Or do you just sort of like stand by and be there for them when stuff happens? Like, that is a fascinating thing about like family and friendship is often you just want to be like, Hey, don't fucking do this thing. Cause we want you to be alive and not die. Or we want you to sort of like be well, but then we can't possibly do that because when was the last time you as a, as a human being received that sort of advisory? Well, I never receive it. Well, no one ever has. So it's like, there's always a tension. <laughs> it's right. And this is like, I don't know. I feel like ultimately a movie about, motherhood really and how it's like well you just gotta like deal with it as your kid gets goes on the bobsled like sometimes your kid is on the bobsled yeah totally this is about julia roberts on that bobsled as you said and everyone either cheering her on or um being really bummed out that she got on it in the first place (laughs) and it's like well you know you're on it now so let me give you a kidney i love this uh the relationship between Julia Roberts and Sally Field in this movie, because, you know, Julia Roberts is so, you know, youthful birth, you know, literally, and also in personality. And at the beginning of the movie, I always get a little bit choked up because she makes the comment about wanting to grow old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, a few minutes later, we find out that she's pregnant and that will likely result in her demise. And there's that beautiful scene where everybody is celebrating the announcement of her coming baby and Sally Fields by herself and her friends come in and they're like, aren't you excited? And somebody says, you know, this actually isn't, isn't good news. And, 
they kind of draw from Julia Roberts' optimism in this movie, everything will be all right. They do that adorable thing where they, that, you know, athletes do where they all put their hands and they, they say, you know, we're going to do this together. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be safe. And I love the fact that you probably know things aren't going to be, to end up okay, but Mm -hmm. you know that those women are going to be there for Sally Field, Malin, if it were to fall down. It sets up that, that relationship perfectly Mm -hmm. between the women. Yeah. Over time, I think the thing you ultimately realize is it's like you can't or ideally you ultimately realize or you don't realize it and it fucking crushes you. But like you can't circumvent every potentially bad results sort of choice that has consequence or whatever. Like the only thing you really can do is kind of like be there and support as things happen and sort of like while things fall out. And that's the journey that Sally Field is on, <laughs> is realizing that over time, which, um, you know, she Sally Fields her way through the movie, uh, having that realization in different points. And it's really nice to, as a result, it's really nice to see her finally laugh because this is yeah. a movie in which Sally Field doesn't laugh until the last 7% of it. Hmm. You're right. It's a nice catharsis. Mm. Sally. Mm. Sally, I hope that at some point Sally Field realizes that we've turned her name into a verb. (laughs) That's how you know you've really made it is whenever uh, you when you turn an actress's name into a verb. And it's wild in that Oprah interview I mentioned, she talks about imposter syndrome and and not in the, you know, not using those words because this was in 1989. But she talks about how despite having won two Academy Awards at the time, she still feels like she's undeserving of it. And it's funny because a lot of the other mm-hmm. actresses are like, no, I don't feel that at all. And, you know, <laughs> she's likely one of the most successful of all of them. And, you know, she's I'm watching this woman sit in her room and or, you know, the studio, Oprah's studio, touching on a point that still affects us today. A very um, and, you know, I think everybody has imposter syndrome, but I think women mm professional women also suffer from it too. So just a point about Sally Fielding, Sally Fielding. Yeah. (laughs) And hopefully she knows that if she has imposter syndrome still that we have verbed her. She is now (laughs) 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 made that, made that mark in history. I forget where I read this. I'm sure it was somewhere when I was still on Twitter and I forget all the language of it really, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, imposter syndrome is like a very helpful idea but like it it misses the point partly which is like it's not your fault that you don't think you deserve to be where you are it's just that everyone's gaslighting you the whole time so why would you know your own worth honestly yeah because like white men don't get imposter syndrome very much it's just that there's immunity for some reason and that relates to it yeah the men in this movie don't have imposter syndrome no i mean the men in this movie don't really have inner lives i feel like what something i i love about this movie is it's like complete disinterest in men in a, in a fundamental way it's just like yeah they exist but what of it yeah they'll be making a racket trying to find arrows in the garage like that's what they're up to <laughs> yeah right it's like while women are like living out like all this trauma and beauty and like event planning (laughs) Shelby's brothers are literally running around trying to find arrows and firecrackers they're like yeah she has two brothers I can't tell them apart they're just like this force (laughs) yeah (laughs) totally I bet they have names in the movie, but I can't remember them for the life of me and the first time I think you see them they're sticking ice down Malin's shirt while she's trying to, you know, lasso everybody into preparing for this wedding that's obviously such a such a toll on her emotionally. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
and they, of course, I mean, they, they make those jokes too, right before the surgery, they, uh, they bring out the movie and call it a, a tale of two kidneys. And, uh, <laughs> it's the greatest contribution, really. Right. <laughs> they just make these, these jokes. I think they're playing uh, Go Fish or something. And they, one of them says, give me all your kidneys. <laughs> and again, I don't know which one says or does what, but. I love that. If you were to like put this movie on a spaceship or something, like preserve it for the future of humanity to watch to try and understand like what were the 80s <laughs> um just to try and you know preserve it for that use like what do you think people would learn from it hmm. Hmm. the thing that st stood out to me is i was like nobody's and it's funny because i know that like so much of the 80s was constructed out of mm -hmm. a feeling of like potential nuclear annihilation still like yeah. we were still sort of like in that direction but like all of these movies like Nobody seems to be dreading the fact that like tomorrow might be really bad. Like that's that's always the feeling. Like my past decade has been mm -hmm. defined by being like tomorrow might be the big day. Mm -hmm. And this movie's or today, who knows? <laughs> like these movies that are just like so it's like there it's about like the internal universe of the people, it's about the the town dynamics. They're kind of like very focused, like there will certainly be a tomorrow, even though this ends in the death of one of the characters. Yeah. There's like a even with like interpersonal stuff going on, like there is a tomorrow hmm. and there's like a real brightness to 20th century movies. <laughs> there is, right? They're like inflation is a concern, but, you know, <laughs> and it's not like people didn't have problems. You know, this is like it's we just we're just not seeing it here. <laughs> They're uh, very I don't want to say insulated because that's kind of sounds like they're like they're ignorant people, but the movie is very insulated in their own family and community. And it doesn't sort of have that like looming doom of, you know, like Cold War era or the looming doom of mm -hmm. whatever you call today or anything like that. God, what do you call today? <laughs> right. Late capitalism. <laughs> yeah. Very, very connected. Um, it's interesting. I don't know how small towns function in, in today's world. I haven't, you know, I haven't lived in one in today's world, but this idea of a very strong community, it, I, I sort of feel a little bit um, like nostalgic or sad for it. Like, even though a lot of it is sort of rooted in like cattiness and gossip, like mm -hmm. you can tell that the smallness of the town is is very much keeping this group of friends alive. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not on their like community town Facebook group uh, swearing at each other, which is like, <laughs> I feel like how... <laughs> I'm still for whatever, like I don't use Facebook at all Me and either. I don't know why I still have an account that's connected to like the community group board from the town that I grew up in. I think just so I can look in every once in a while and like know what's going on in that town. But, um, you know, the, the gossip is happening like right out in the open now. <laughs> it's like not a part of a small group of people. It's like everyone is kind of in the bloodbath together. Mm -hmm. And I just like to add, I think Weezer would be the most miserable person to befriend on Facebook <laughs> if, if this movie were to take place in today's world. Like, she'd be the person complaining oh about, like, you know, a, a branch falling in her yard or, you know, kids making too much noise. Like, she's very much that woman, you know? Yeah. I think the thing about Facebook is that it kind of brings out the worst in all of us. Like, it doesn't, like, nobody's Facebook output is, like... Wow, I'm, this is so much better than interacting with this person in reality. Like, it, it's, that's never happened. 
And like, I am sure that there is something about, you know, our increasing inability to communicate with each other face to face that's like making us all even more horrible than we have to be. And like, we all know this, but it's just it's I think it helps to occasionally remember that we're not designed for this. Yes. Yeah. And in in that way, I mean, like, these are the things that make the fact that she's pulled off life support and it's not like a, it doesn't ever strike as like a grand statement. Like it feels like it comes from another time in that way as well, is that it's like they're making a pragmatic, you know, this is seven. Well, you, you would Mm. know this, but it's like seven or eight years pre Terry Shivo. This is like 15 years pre that. Oh, wow. High school at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So like this is, you know, there's a handful of things that happen that are not like grand political statements that if this movie came out now, people would be like, they're trying to be woke. Yeah. <laughs> they, they have a very frank conversation about someone being gay and it's not bad, like, but it's not good either. But like, yeah, this is a movie that I feel like if anyone who's clearing library shelves in all of the states where library shelves are being cleared, if they like knew what was in Steel Magnolias, they'd include it in the in the clearing. You Like they would censor Steel Magnolias? Yeah, totally. Like all the people mm. who are making inventories of what's inappropriate at libraries mm. and removing them from shelves. Too sympathetic to taking child off life support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Woke Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> To your point about that, that scene where she's um, taken off life support in such a such a quiet and almost rushed way, it, it mm-hmm. sort of reinforces the strength of Sally Field's character. I mean, she walks in without even announcing that. I mean, I think they all assume that that's what's happening, but she just immediately dives into funeral plans for for Shelby. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I think she points to Jackson and says, you know, you're going to need to find her a pink suit. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, she goes home and she's crying on the way home. And then that's almost it. And it's again, sort of speaks to this way that, um, women have this tendency to just sort of do what's, in, I mean, maybe everybody in times of grief, but just sort of immediately dive into what needs to happen, start to choreograph the next steps of their, their grief without even acknowledging that she's dead yeah yeah and it's proof that gender is complicated that i'm like useless in in situations Mm. like that when i was 12 my neighbor who was 28 fell hit her head and then was on life support for a couple of weeks and then was pulled off life support Mm. and i and i was very close with her family i was as involved i guess as a 12 year old can be like i like helped like mow their lawn and like was around for the funeral for like days like helped make food and stuff like that and it was the way that that's covered in this movie where like it feels like it's like there's something wrong now we're kind of like at the abrupt end now we're sort of in the grief is like almost how the memories of those times work Hmm. it's not a clean and tidy arc it's like these like specific things that you remember from that time happening and then sort of like everyone coming together but then there's only kind of like your closest friends and like closest part of the circle that are like see the intimate pieces of it and we're kind of seeing all of these parts of life that are seen through the eyes of the friends who are there for you when things Mm. are hardest and when you know when your friends who are able to show up for you are there. And yeah, I, I like that. I like what this movie does. I like that this was a movie that, you know, people probably went to thinking that <laughs> that they were probably going to laugh a whole lot and then they were confronted with death. And I, uh, I appreciate that in a movie. Well, and that's what life is like. You're either laughing or somebody is dying. And, and <laughs> like, it's all very close together, which, you know, movies don't represent that well a lot of the time. And I do love that this is like, 
yeah, it's such a tragic movie and it's kind of like a Shakespearean tragedy in the sense that like we know from the beginning where all this is going and it's because Shelby feels like she can't live a full life unless she has a baby. But that it's then just like very funny the whole way down. Like that just feels like reality. Yeah. For sure. One character that we haven't gotten into too mm. much, if, if you want to, you know, go in this direction, sure. is uh, is Clary, yeah. who is who is sort of always the um, she's sort of like the the balloon in this movie, and that she kind of keeps everybody afloat with her sort of lighthearted sense of humor. Like she's she's mm-hmm. a widow, but she's not. Um, I mean, of course, she's grieving on the inside, but she's one of the few that's sort of like you don't really delve into her like very tragic home life, for example. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate mm-hmm. her sort of being the comic relief that kind of drives everybody else to be that comic relief. And I, I always enjoy the part where she buys the, um, someone says, you should buy the radio station. She goes, why would I do that? And then she does. <laughs> <laughs> and her color commentary is commenting on the uniforms of the uh, uh, football players, which I really like while she gets to see their butts. Yeah. I love that scene. There's the, no reason for it to be in there. It's so great. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so Every good. really great movie needs at least one scene that doesn't need to be in there. Right. Yes, I agree entirely. All right. Well, we know that Tom Skerritt is a father in this movie. What's his name? Trunk? Drum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Trunk. We know Stump is a father in this movie. Tom Skerritt is playing old Trunky McGee over here. (laughs) (laughs) We know Trunky McGee is a father in this movie. Who, in your view, is the daddy? Uh, Allie, do you want to kick us off? Gosh, I've been I've been thinking about my answer to this question because I knew it was coming. And gosh, I mean, part of me wants to say Sally Field, mm. but also she has like her whole characterization is that like I think she says like she's never got to have a meltdown or anything like that. Part of me mm. wants to say Dolly, <laughs> wants to say Truby. You know, she becomes a chain. You know, she sort of has this sort of like very even in despite of her own pain, she has this relentless optimism that sort of reminds me almost of, of dad humor in a way, <laughs> but I'm happy, but it's, it's a tricky movie. And I, I really want to hear your, imp- your impressions. Like I want to say Dolly because of her presence in the movie and my bias toward her, which is, you know, unconditional love. Um, I'm way more curious to hear your perspective because you guys are aces at identifying the, the daddy <laughs> of the movie. I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to agree. I, I, or with, in my view, it's Dolly who again is like playing Dolly in a movie. Like the character of Dolly in the movie is often a very similar character, which is someone who has who's like no nonsense and kind of like speaks quippily and is like unbothered by a lot of situations and is like very like, you know, she reminds always like of an extremely competent aunt. And I yeah, that's that's kind of who she is here. And she gives you know, she kind of she gives uh, Daryl Hannah's character a place to be and a place to work and then tries to help her when she, you know, tries to help her from her overcorrection into fundamentalism. Like she's really doing a lot of work. Like everyone gathers at her house, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, you know, she's the most ideal version of the daddy when in a movie where we see uh, the least ideal versions of daddies (laughs) or through of dads throughout it. And she has a clubhouse essentially. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's also very interesting that like part of the finale of this movie is that she gets franchised into a chain and it's like, well, 
Nobody wants that. What's the point of Dolly Parton salon with no Dolly Parton in it? What are you just going to have a bunch of college girls in wigs? <laughs> a lot of 80s media had some nod to like a franchise or a chain. That's so true, huh? She's like, I'm a chain. Like, I love that. Yeah, Her, it's it's a very that. 80s value. I want to hear a, a Dolly Parton cover of Fleetwood Mac's The Chain. That's what I want. That's my daddy. Yes, I've never agreed with a statement more. My right? God. <laughs> Throw some auto harp in there. Alex, I'm getting to my thoughts, but when are we going to start a movie theater already and where should we do it? That's a great question. Yeah. I would love to speak. Everyone loves Quentin Tarantino's movie theater mm -hmm. in L.A., but it's it's Quentin Tarantino's movie theater. So mm -hmm. I'd love to do some version of that. That's not his. <laughs> so it, wait, what's his movie theater called? The New Beverly. It's the New Beverly. The New Beverly. That's right. So we can <laughs> listen. We're going to start a theater called the newer Beverly colon <laughs> the one run by not a creepy guy. <laughs> and ours will be called the old D'Angelo. The old, <laughs> the old D'Angelo. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. The old D'Angelo. And because <laughs> I, one of my favorite things to think about is like, how would I do like a week of programming in my, in the old D'Angelo? Yes. And when I was in Pittsburgh recently, Candace Opper and I went to the Row House. Have you been there in Lawrenceville? I am a Pittsburgh native. And yes, I've been to the Row House. It's excellent. What? Oh, my God. Oh, I, I can't believe I didn't make you abreast of that, Sarah. How did this not come up? I'm a Pittsburgh stan. That is, makes me delighted to hear. And while you guys were getting into where should we open the, you know, your movie theater, I was about to proclaim that Pittsburgh should be the place. Yeah. It's just perfect. It's the perfect city. There are enough people who are interested in movies that I imagine that there are people who have some cinema mm -hmm. poll who listen to this show. So if anybody does want a week of You Are Good sort of derived programming, yeah. uh, wherever it is, I'm sure we would be interested. Yes. <laughs> so something I was thinking about, Candace and I went to see Duel at the Row House, which I love and which I had seen years ago with her, but like never on that scale. And it's a great movie. And it's so fun to see little Stevie Spielberg just having the time of his life. And I was like thinking at the time about what would be a fun week of like Western horror programming, which in my opinion would be Duel, Road Games, yes. Near Dark, yes. Wolf Creek, yes. Revenge. Yes. And then Castile Magnolias and kind of Truvy having a clubhouse to get all the way back around to that. There could be a great week of programming in the concept of like escape from straight time. And you could have this Ooh. and Stand By Me Ooh. and three other things. Great idea. <laughs> I love that. I love Escape from Straight Time. That's fantastic. <laughs> so my daddy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Truvy is my daddy because she just kind of, she provides a space for this community to exist in. She's always supportive regardless of what's going on. And she like always knows how to diffuse a situation. And she's Dolly fucking partner. There you go. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And and even in her marriage, I portray her as as the daddy. You know, it, it's oh yeah. You know, the tension between her and her husband. He always wants to stay home. He can't you know get work, and he, and she's you know kind of just marching on, and in spite of all of it, and taking care of everybody. She is very much 
you know, I, I'm glad that we're on the same page. She's very much the daddy. <laughs> Yeah. How do you want people to find you? What do you want? What? How do you want us to direct folks in your direction? Yeah. So, um, I most I you can find me on Twitter. Um, I am uh, known as Xanabon, which I often dream that one day it's which is Xanax and a Cinnabon Sarah. That's <laughs> how I abbreviate uh, <laughs> that. Um, I'm waiting for a cease and desist from Cinnabon any day, um, but it's uh, X A N A B O N uh, on Twitter. Um, and you can find me there. And, uh, I, you know, I like to make funny jokes. I like to make commentary on, uh, TV and, uh, and movies and, uh, in my unemployed state, that is all that I'm really doing right now. <laughs> so find me on Twitter at Xanavon. And, uh, it's been such a pleasure being here. Um, I love being a friend of the pod and it's great to finally meet you guys. So fantastic. It's been so great to do this with you. Yeah. Thank you for indulging me in my favorite movie ever. And I would love to do this again. Thank you guys. (laughs) (laughs) It was so lovely. Thank you. All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to Ali Sukovich for being on the show and talking about this movie with us. We had a blast. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode and editing it as well. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing this episode. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episodes sound so sweet. Thanks to you if you are one of the fine folks who supports the show on Patreon and Apple podcast subscriptions. Uh, remember, you get bonus episodes in exchange for your support. We appreciate you. Thanks for following us on Twitter and Instagram at YouAreGoodPod. Um, I'm over at Blue Sky. I'm wondering what's happening over there. It seems like it's got some promise. Who knows what the next Twitter successor is, but let's just hope something comes along, I guess. Thanks for being here. We appreciate you. We'll be back next week with You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. And don't you forget it, that you, my friend, are good.